Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So would you consider yourself beautiful? How do you define beauty, anyway? Hear from a fashion model with decades in the industry and meet a model who uses a wheelchair. As a disabled woman, I don't think until I fully embraced that part of myself that I truly felt wholly beautiful. And hear from two non-binary models about what beauty means to them. When I decided to identify as genderqueer versus being a cis woman, that was a turning point. And with each of those moments, it's like, ah, I'm unlocking a new layer of self-affirmed beauty standard. I am painting, celebrating, and eyelining something that everyone has been told should not be beautified. I'm Kyone Wolf, Models on Beauty. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after NPR News Headlines. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Beauty, in general, and especially how it's perceived among our fellow humans, is weird. You can find one person super attractive, even addicting to look at, and someone else can look at that same person and think, meh, nah. And when we see ourselves, it is a whole different ball game. Most of us, well, I gather most of us anyway, but maybe I'm projecting, but most of us have maybe a physical feature or two that we find pleasing enough, but otherwise truly feeling beautiful. I mean, truly beautiful is, let's say, elusive. But if you're a model, then there must be something different going on in your brain because you know there's a there there. I mean, you're making a living, showing up to photo shoots, knowing the angles to point your chin, marching down the runway like a boss, appearing in commercials, and you're like, hell yeah, I am beautiful. Look. So today, models on beauty. You'll meet two models who are gender fluid and one model whose wheelchair is a powerful part of her portfolio. First, where haven't you seen Jennifer Jimenez? Well, she was on Maxim Magazine's Hot 100 list. She's been in music videos for Tupac Shakur, Babyface, and Mick Jagger. She's been in films like Blow, Vanilla Sky, and Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. She's been on TV shows like Sober House on VH1 and Bravo's Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. And now she's on Audacious. Congratulations, Jennifer. I asked her to tell me when was the first time she looked at herself in a mirror or saw a photo of herself and thought, huh, I got lucky. I am beautiful. I I don't think I ever thought like, oh, wow, I got lucky or, oh, gosh, I'm pretty. I knew that I looked different because I was taller than the rest of the kids. I didn't look like the typical American kid in my neighborhood. I felt different. And I don't know if I incorporate 
the beauty part of it different. It's not just that. I think it was a lot of things that added on to me feeling different. However, I know that like they would say for a long time when I was younger that I looked like Jackie O and it's like, and I'm like, oh, okay, I got to do the Jackie O thing. You know what I mean? Like I didn't know it was about beauty. So bring me to the Santa Monica pier when you were 13 years old, enjoying an afternoon with your mom and your brother. What happened? This photographer came up to us. He said it was a legitimate photographer. We looked at him like, what? And uh, and it was kind of cool to have like somebody come up and say, hey, you should be an actress or a model or this. Because we had a couple of times people say, oh, your daughter should get into modeling, right? And we'd be like, yeah, whatever. Like, you know, I'm, and then, you know, I kind of was like, mommy, can I? And she'd be like, no. It, I mean, because they were slight, they didn't look right, feel right. This man on this particular day, his name is Bruce Weber. He just, it all connected. You know, and it was like, okay, that felt right. You know, I can tell you that. And he said, you know, I'm a legit photographer. I'm shooting for this guy. He's a, photo- a designer. He's a big designer. His name's Azadine Alaya. Um, and we're looking at him like, okay, you know, like not a clue. Um, we came, I grew up in dirt roads and donkeys in Argentina. So, you know, getting exposed to a world that I didn't know anything of, or I didn't know a designer, you know, on that level. We kind of just looked at him. I think we probably looked very dazed and confused. And he said, you know, I am. This is really legit. Like, I'm not here to be creepy. Although on a side note, if somebody keeps saying they're legit, I would be like, are you really? Legit? I know, you know, the lady mean? doth possess too much. But it turns out dude was legit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we must have looked. I mean, I can only imagine our faces, you know, on that moment looking at him. And my mom like was like, I don't think so, Jenny. And all I was doing was like tugging at her going, come on, come on, mom. You know, and it was so glamorous. And uh, of course, I convinced my mom that night to let me show up the next day. And I go and I have really long hair and like I go to the Shangri-La Hotel because that's where we were shooting. Finally, they put me in this outfit on and they put me in front of the screen and it was like instant, like love at first sight. I knew exactly what I was doing. It was like I was supposed to be doing this my whole entire life. It was just it was such a weird moment. And Bruce fell in love with me that day and told my mom, I'm keeping her and you and you guys are going to stay here. And and by the end of that week, we had every agency flying in from all over the world trying to meet us. And we were with Bruce. And so I did everything with Bruce. I did uh, a campaign and then I did this movie he was shooting called Let's Get Lost, a documentary on Chet Baker. From there, I went and I shot Calvin Klein for another three, four weeks. And then uh, in San Francisco, and then my mom and I flew to Paris and there I was with paparazzi at the airport. And I'm like, I'm missing school. What the hell is going on? You know what I mean? Like it was, I was a kid and then, you know, I was the photos of what I did with Bruce and as in If you look in the collection book, which came out, I am like with other women and like, you know, I'm in G strings and the women, and it looks like I'm like madly in love with women and these photos. And it was just art. It was so pure and innocent. But the, the photos are very provocative, you know? What, besides the, the amazing amount of work and fame and money and recognition, what were some really great things about, like when you would go get a cup of coffee or you would go to the store, what were the advantages on a daily, normal person basis of being seen as beautiful? Wow. Um, okay, so there comes a time where as a model, Like, I was like, okay, things are like, I'm getting a lot of pool in some ways, you know, like you go to dinner. I mean, you go to a club for, you get in, you know, you, you people 
go, oh my God, she's so beautiful. It's okay. Or like, you can get away with being an excuse my language. You can get away. Like my, I could get anything I wanted. You know, it was at my disposal in the sense of if I asked for it. I, I knew at times I could get away with a being late, not showing up to things or like having a reason why I just don't want to do it. Like, how, like being a really was the, my biggest one. Like, OK, I can get away with it because, you know. Hmm. Yeah. And that leads to one of the many frustrations and challenges of being beautiful. I mean, one of the first things that I imagine is the unwanted attention that you get like you go into a coffee shop and it's you know heads turning and for some people that that attention is awesome and I imagine it also is really tiring and also like how do you know if someone's being nice to you because they're just being nice to you or are they just reacting to your beauty in the way that any human being would react to something beautiful the way we soften around something or someone who's beautiful that sort of like electricness that it feels just to be around something or someone beautiful like how how do you trust that people are being real with you you know what i mean yeah it's hard it, it is hard you know i've worked on myself i've done a lot of work on myself like a lot like extreme i'm really proud and honored to say that i have done thorough work and i continue to do thorough work on myself but i say i will probably be one of the most insecure people you'll ever meet in your life and why is because I have been so picked apart for my whole entire life. Even at the top of my game, modeling was, I was never enough. I was only as good as my next job cover campaign. If not, I was nothing. And they, they told me that even at the, my height of my career, hundreds of covers out, guest campaigns, Calvin Klein campaigns, you know, Victoria's, name it, I was in it. You know, and they were like, you're either too tall, too short, your hair is too red, too brown, too long, too, your eyebrow. I know every imperfection there is to know about me. That is the modeling world. If I see a tape measure today, I still cringe. It freaks me out. I had no foundation. So my looks were everything I had because that's what they told me and indented in my head. And to know if people are genuinely nice to you because of the way you look has been a big battle on both sides of the scale, you know, for me, because I was skinny and beautiful and tall and young and just careless and free. And there was, you know, and if you didn't like me, F you, I kept going like there was, I just kept going. But then came later in years where I gained a lot of weight and I went from being anorexic to obese. And with that, that's worse. I'm Latin. I've been all around the world. I've been even in the South have they treated me. I've, I've felt discrimination. I have felt discrimination being a Latin woman, being a woman in general. The worst I felt discriminated. My discrimination that I felt was when I was heavy. And by women of all people, like of all people, women, you know, and that was a big heartbreak. So I know the both sides of it. And so I know that like, you know, before I could get away with it, I don't try to do any of that today. Life's a lot different. I want to ask if you ever wished you weren't beautiful, but I know that everything you went through, the advantages and the pain, and there was a lot of pain, has led you to where you are now with your husband and everything that is meaningful to you. So I, that, that question wouldn't really work, but maybe the better way to ask it is, 
if you get a next life, would you want to be beautiful in the way you are again? Yes, I would. I would. I'll tell you why. Because in this lifetime, I think I'm learning the lessons. And I think that if I valued my beauty in the eye of me, within me, in the eye of the beholder, I would say within me, I would use it to my advantage for the greater good. I care too much. That was my problem. I care too much. I care too much of what you thought, what everyone else thought, you know, my people pleasing, my codependency and all the other aspects of it. I was so more worried about that if you liked me, because if you liked me, then maybe I would like me because I learned not to like me. But if you have that next life, if you could somehow absorb the lessons you've learned from this one and still be what we view as beautiful, take it and run. Girl, I'd be, I'd be ruling my own universe. I mean, I'm ruling it now, but like it took a hot minute, right? It took a long <laughs> hot minute. And like, I just feel like anyone that's listening to this, like right now, right here is the time for you to start owning your own universe, you know, embrace your own being. Like, and if it's wiggling your arms around, putting your chest out and just being like, yo, I'm right here. Like, that's good enough, right? If you could sit in front of an eight-year-old girl who doesn't feel beautiful, what would you say to her? I would tell her that I understood and that there were many times I didn't feel beautiful. And I don't think even at eight years old, I saw myself beautiful as I saw myself different. And I didn't know what that was. And that I hope that she could find her different and her uniqueness and to focus on that because that's what her beauty really is. Beauty changes, it evolves, it grows. You know, I lately have been walking around going, did my younger self know that this girl right now, this woman right now would be existing? What would my older self say to this girl right now? In that moment, I just go, you're fine. You're fine. You're doing just great. And you are beautiful. Oh, Jennifer Jimenez, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. I love you. I love you. <laughs> when we get back, the power and beauty of one model and her wheelchair. It's not wheelchair found. It's not you're more than your chair. It's like you and your chair are beautiful. Plus two non-binary models on what beauty means to them. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, we're talking to models about beauty. Later in the show, you'll meet two models who identify as gender fluid or non-binary and hear about how they view beauty and the power their beauty has in the world and within themselves. But right now, meet Bree Scalisi. She's a model, writer, and disability advocate living in New York City. In many of her photos and runway work, you'll see that she uses a wheelchair. I asked her when she first thought she was beautiful. That's a really interesting question for me to think about. Um, I started life as, you know, an able-bodied person, as a non-disabled person, I became disabled at six years old in a car accident and 
I don't think I was old enough yet to have a true conception of what beautiful meant fully, but I did know even from that age that now being a wheelchair user, there wasn't anyone that looked like me, you know, in the TV shows I watched or in the magazines I was looking at. So I had a really hard time understanding what beauty meant for me um, and what beauty standards were for me as someone who wasn't seeing representations of their body anywhere. And so for me, fashion and beauty itself and makeup and clothing and all of those things became really important to me. I was kind of both. Uh, I had both energies before the car accident. I loved getting dressed up and playing with my Barbies, but I really also loved hiking and being in the backyard and like digging up grass and dirt and all of these things um, and just getting really messy. Um, After the car accident, I think I really honed in on this idea of like having to be girly and feminine and like having to prove my beauty almost. I don't know if I realized that like consciously, but it was really important to me to look um, a certain way. So I could almost, I think, control my image in the way that people were seeing me because my wheelchair was so focused on by people as soon as they would see me that if I felt my best, whatever that was, especially as a child, I felt a little more in control of people's perceptions, um, which now I think I don't resonate with as deeply. I, I love fashion so much, but I don't think I use it as a tool to change people's perceptions as much. But I think I struggled with feeling beautiful for a really, really long time. And there were definitely moments where I felt good about the way that I looked, but I think true, truly beautiful was something that came about when I really started to accept myself as a disabled woman and identify as a disabled woman. I don't think until I fully embraced that part of myself, which was kind of in my mid twenties and finding my community and meeting other women in New York city in wheelchairs, um, that I truly felt wholly beautiful. When I think about beauty, I can't help but think about worth, which feels gross Yeah, to say and to feel, right? I mean, I think about the things that I find to be beautiful and I value. And of course, there's so many different kinds of beautiful, right? A refrigerator can be beautiful. and But when, when I say that, like, when I think about beauty, I think about worth. What do you feel when I say that? Yeah, I I really resonate with that. I think two also different types of worth, right? Like the worth that is placed on us by society and then the worth that is placed on us by ourselves, you know, our self-worth. And I think by being a disabled person, often our lives and um, our rights are treated as less. Our worth is less. And I think that can be really seen in like just the physical world around us um, in the physical structures around us where it would be so simple to build, uh, you know, one small ramp into a one-step storefront in the city. And it's not even thought of after 30, 40 years of somewhere being in business or potentially worse, a new business that's just being created and constructed and, and that not being thought of. Like, I think 
the worth of my community in general by society is not there. So beauty is something that is barely, I think, even on the radar where disabled people haven't been considered beautiful for, you know, almost all of human history or not on a societal larger scale. And so that really affected my self-worth growing up uh, as a disabled kid and teenager and just feeling like, where do I fit? Where are the beauty standards for me, you know? So yeah, I think self-worth is something that I have for sure now through my community, through my friends, through my partner, through looking in the mirror and just being like, I love so many people that look like me. I love me. Simple math. Yeah. (laughs) How did it feel and what went through your head when you were wheeling down the runway for the first time at the New York Bridal Fashion Week? What was going through your head? It was honestly a pure adrenaline rush in a way that I've never experienced on set. I think it's like a free creativity flowing kind of feeling, but that moment of being on the runway and all of these eyes being on me, but not in a way that I was used to was so powerful because I am used to being stared at and being looked at as I go down the street, you know, it happens every day still, but all these eyes were on me and on what I was wearing and on this beautiful design. And purely for that reason of being a model and and wearing this beautiful gown and not because people are oogling at disability and confused by disability, but really just here's this model. And definitely, of course, it was celebrated. And I think shocking even to some people that I was you know, a wheelchair user and I was on the runway, but it wasn't about my chair. I think it was about me in movement with my body, with my chair. And so that was a really surreal, powerful moment for me. I'd like to hear about your wheelchair and your relationship with it. Cause in one way, you know, it gets you around, right? It's literally your vehicle to get around. And It's also something that people see right away about you. It pulls the attention from you, right? And gives people ideas as to who you are, what happened to you, your worth. There are all these things your wheelchair enables you to do, but it also distracts from you. So what are your thoughts on your relationship to your wheelchair and what that has to do with your sense of beauty? My last chair which is really weird to say. Um, I didn't have her for very long, but my last chair, I pronounced and referred to her as she, her, and I named her. I named her Aphrodite and kind of naturally over the course of time ended up calling her Aph shorter and easier, but after the goddess of love, because I was really entering this stage of self-love in my life that I had never experienced before. And so I started to see my chair at that point as my partner in movement, as a part of me, not as I want to be seen beyond my chair. I want to be seen with my chair. And it was a such a different experience for me to feel that way. But it felt the most full that I've ever felt in my beauty and in myself because my realtor really is a part of my body. And so 
wanting to be seen past my wheelchair is kind of not accepting this part of my body. It's not wheelchair bound. It's not like you're more than your chair. It's like you are beautiful. You and your chair are beautiful. It's a complete connection between me and my chair. I wonder if seeing your beauty and seeing your beauty as a whole person with a wheelchair, I wonder if your disability gives you more fire, more rocket fuel to kick ass, you know? Yeah, a hundred percent. I can see that, especially with other people and then having that reflected back to me in myself. But there's something just really, really incredible about people with disabilities. It's not this inspiration, this inspiration porn that I think is fed, um, especially through media and through film. That's really the only representation other than sad that we've gotten is inspirational. And it's not about inspiration, but I think to say like badassness and fire is so accurate. This resilience and lust for life and just a really different conception of what is beautiful and what is meaningful and really valuing things beyond the superficial and then also finding beauty in things that maybe aren't traditionally thought of that way. Yeah. I think disability is a superpower in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, there are people that will forever struggle with disability or with the word and because society puts us in such a box, but if you can find the power in it, it becomes a really meaningful way of living. What would you say to someone who views themselves as disabled and has a really freaking hard time tying the word beauty to themselves? Beauty is really about the standards that we set and that we see. It's not about one look anymore. You know, now it's about finding power, whether um, you're plus size or a woman of color or disabled or trans and really just setting those beauty standards ourselves. With social media, I think we have that power. And so knowing that beauty standards are ever changing and that disability really is becoming something that the world is seeing and something that the world is starting to see in a different way and that people's perceptions of you can shift and will shift and and don't matter as much as what you feel and what you see yourself and that you shouldn't tie the days that your disability is hard because disability can be really hard with how you view it and how beautiful you feel. You can have a hard day and be disabled and still see the beauty in yourself and see the beauty in how badass it is to be a disabled person. I think we are honestly some of the most hardworking, incredible people. And that in itself is so beautiful. Well, is there anything that I missed that you want to say in the context of this conversation about beauty? No, I feel super good. I think a lot of these questions made me think more deeply Um, And I think I'm still thinking more deeply about the first question about like when the first time I felt beautiful was and how that is like ever changing for me and the meaning of beauty. And as I get older, 
it's so much more about the inner person really, really truly shines through. And um, I've seen even in my industry, superficially beautiful doesn't always mean truly beautiful and vice versa. What maybe society's beauty standards are don't apply to someone, but then you get to know them or even they get in front of a camera and there's something so effervescent and beautiful and shining about who they are. And that just like comes through and it's really cool to see that. Well, Brie Scalisi, thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was a really cool conversation. After the break. When do you feel like you don't need to depend on somebody's compliment to remind you that you are so very hot and sexy and worthy and all of the above. I am in a shell that people say should not be worshipped and beautified. I do it anyway, and I love it. Two models on the beauty of being non-binary. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today's show is about beauty, specifically how models view beauty in other people and in themselves. Being in the eye of the beholder, we know that beauty is not a binary concept. A person who's beautiful, like stomach-dropping gorgeous to me. Maybe to you, not that big of a deal. No hearts aflutter. And someone's physical beauty can grow on us, Right. Like when they say brilliant things, or they make us laugh, or they do something heroic. Or when someone we once thought was so beautiful does something disrespectful, selfish, abhorrent. Well, that beauty and its power can fade real fast. We're lucky to be living in a world that's less and less binary. So now I want you to meet two people whose work includes modeling and whose gender identities are non-binary. Oscar Sinclair is a genderqueer femborg who's a model, artist, and sex educator in Brooklyn, New York. I asked them to tell me when it was that they first realized they were beautiful. <laughs> Ooh, that's a... All right. Um, the first time that it dawned on me that I was beautiful was seventh grade. And I know this because I had spent up until then thinking I was so ugly, right? Uh, my, I was born in Ghana. My, we came here when I was five years old. And from that period of time, even in elementary school, moments that I can't remember, people, classmates would like to like reference for me. I remember one classmate telling me that when I was in the first grade, I used to have really bad braids. And I couldn't remember this, but she so adamantly wanted me to know how bad my braids were that she would keep on saying this. And so it just felt like outside of me not feeling beautiful, there were people who looked like me because I grew up in a predominantly Black community, Black and Latinx community, who wanted me to feel otherized in the ways that I look and to let me know that I was not nowhere close to whatever standard of beauty they 
were using as a metric. So went through the whole of elementary school just not feeling beautiful. I get to Ghana and in Ghana, there are no janitors to sweep for the students. So before the first day of school, all the students come and they sweep their classrooms. They wipe down their teacher's hall and everything beforehand. So I go to the cleanup day and I'm sweeping the classroom that I learned was to be mine. And one of the school prefects comes to me, looks at me, and she starts bowing down before me tells me, oh my God, my African queen, you're so beautiful. And I thought, who are you talking about? <laughs> who, me? It's like, is this, is this a joke? And I felt great in that moment. I felt embarrassed, but I felt great in that moment. And then afterwards, I felt so confused. It's like, what has life been up until this point? That it took me so long to hear somebody say it and believe it, you know? So it was just so much happened mentally that moment. Yeah, because I imagine that, you know, in a way... To hear it from someone outside of you, it's like it's like the ball in the in the salad dressing container that mixes it up, right? It's 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 effective in that way, and and that's exciting and and validating because it's coming from the outside. But at the same time, like you could hear that from anybody, but there's got to be this shift where you see it too. Yeah, that shift didn't happen until much later, and. What it then created was like this idea that in Ghana, I'm beautiful. In America, I'm ugly. So whilst I'm in Ghana, I need to figure out everybody who thinks I'm attractive or I need to move through spaces that, that, that create that same reaction. And that didn't happen often, right? It's not that people were saying I was ugly. Uh, people were affirming that I was beautiful, but never again would that reaction of somebody bowing down to me happen. And so I started to gauge my level of attractiveness with a new metric, the level to which somebody would feel obligated to kneel down before me and let me know how deserving I was of praise. So from one level of harm to another, right? Yeah. And then it was equally jarring when we, when I left Ghana and came back to America to complete high school and go to college and then feeling like that level of confidence, what if, if we can call it that, just had to go out the window because I was back to a place that didn't think of me as even remotely attractive. So I had to now focus on things like my intellect to get noticed. And so I was that year, I was the captain of my school's decathlon. I made sure to be in AP classes just because I felt if people aren't going to think of me as attractive, then they're going, they're going to know that I'm smart as f- you know? It's funny because I think about beauty and I think about the value we put on it and people being attracted to us and viewed as attractive. And on the one hand, it's like, well, it shouldn't matter. What does is, what is my physical appearance have to do with anything? And on the other hand, how could we deny this programming that we're under as human beings? And so I want to ask, like, when was a turning point where you were like, oh, damn, I'm beautiful and that can't be undone. Or is there a turning point? Is that undoable? Ooh, I think that the turning point, it's not even one turning point. It's a turning point that happens over and over and over again. It just has to look differently each time. Um, So when we come back to America, I'm like, oh, I'm ugly. I'm just going to stay in my box. And then I kept that energy into college. And then I was going through 
mental health crises. So I was definitely not thinking about the, the layers and levels about desirability politics. And I think around sophomore year, I met a partner. We're no longer together, but my partner was a photographer and he would take pictures of me and I'd be so stressed out. Like, why are you taking pictures of me? I'm ugly. I don't want to feel ugly. This makes me feel unattractive. I need you to stop. And he would not, you know, not out of not wanting to respect my boundaries, but wanting to push me outside of my own discomfort. And over time, I started looking at his pictures and was like, wow, how <laughs> I am actually really beautiful. And if no one else thinks that, I have a partner who thinks that. Now I'm believing that for myself. And so we need to keep this momentum building, you know? So I started experimenting with how I dress. I think that the ways in which we think about ourselves informs the ways in which we move through the world and how we take care of ourselves, right? So now I'm believing I'm attracted and I don't need makeup to affirm that. So instead of using makeup, I started focusing on skincare. Instead of wearing baggy clothes, I'm thinking about form-fitting clothes that make me look good and make me feel good. Um, then I'm like, okay, now that I'm not worried about my desirability, I can now really examine, explore, and play with my gender and, and the ways in which I express it to folks. And with every step, every decision to change or add something to myself brings a new turning point, right? So when I, my birth name is Patricia. So when I moved away from Patricia to Oscar, that was a turning point. When I decided to um, identify as genderqueer versus being a cis woman, that was a turning point. And with each of those moments, it's like, ah, I'm unlocking a new layer of understanding, a new layer of self-affirmed beauty standard. And then we know that with each level unlocked comes new challenges. So it just feels like being able to move through them and then arrive at a new place that transitions the ways in which I'm seeing myself, right? Yeah, so it ultimately becomes less about whatever established standard there is and an internal process of when do you feel the sexiest? When do you feel most happy? When do you feel like you don't need to depend on somebody's compliment to remind you that you are so very hot and sexy and worthy and all of the above, you know? Yeah, it makes me think about how we do tie our value with how attractive we are, with how wantable we are, you know? Yeah. That's hard. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure to put on the world outside of us. And it's easy to say, you know, you have to find it from within and you have to develop on it on your own. But it, it sounds like I'm hearing that this is a process that continues forever. And you can see and you can track how you've made that progress. Yeah, it is a journey. And I think that I also try not to tell myself, yeah, just go internal because sometimes you don't want to go internal. After having a long day where things just don't seem like they're going right and you don't have a horizon to look out to, a metaphorical horizon to look out to in terms of when things will get better, I don't want to hear, look inside. Inside's not where I want to be right now. And that is real too. So the notion of constantly being like self-positive, I just want to be self-realistic about where I am in every given moment. If I'm not feeling myself, if I don't feel particularly beautiful for whatever reason, that is a moment to be realistic and, and accept that instead of forcing myself to be okay all the time. I don't want to do that anymore. I've can't believe it. I've asked everything I planned on in the context <laughs> of a beauty. Is there anything that I missed or anything that you want to 
get off your chest and and say about I mean really anything about this. But I guess I'm I'm curious about your own journeys with beauty and desirability. Mm. Why are y'all doing this podcast episode? I feel like it's this thing we can't pin down which makes it really fascinating to me that like and even personally there are some photos I see of myself and I think wow I am like really really beautiful like I I would I would want to talk to me I would want to like get my number Um, (laughs) (laughs) and then there's more often than not where I don't feel that way and Mm -hmm. that's confusing to me like how can I hold these two things and it's also intimidating as hell to think about like what should it matter it kind of freaks me out how much we tie our self-worth to it um i'm also just beginning a divorce and i'm afraid about dating you know and how much of beauty and how i see it is my own worth in this tumultuous uncertain time um so yeah it's i feel like it it beauty kind of gets its tentacles in everything (laughs) one way or the other it does and thank you for that vulnerability i empathize with your journey i am i'm not going through a divorce but i endured two breakups within the pandemic because i thought i was going to be like this amazing poly person (laughs) Having lovers leave you and then having one lover like leave you continuously, repeatedly, like repeated breakups, it definitely did affect the ways in which I thought of desirability because then it learned I learned that a person can find you desirable, but then it could still not matter. Then there becomes a hierarchy of, of the ways in which we place people's desirability. And sometimes you can be, yeah, attractive in all these ways, but someone can just present differently and that shift the ways in which you're wanted um so i'm thinking about that and realizing that these are these are just relationships to have gone through a life journey with someone the ceremony of life and then have it shift i'm holding you so close to my heart and i offer none of the it gets better because you know it does over time right (laughs) oh gosh Oscar Sinclair, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I'm wishing you nothing but goodness on and on and on. If you know Jeffrey Marsh, you know Jeffrey Marsh. They are one of the world's foremost commentators on non-binary identity and activism in America. And they're the author of How to Be You, Stop Trying to Be Someone Else, and Start Living Your Life. They joined me from their home in Los Angeles to tell me about how it came about that they became the first non-binary model in a bridal gown lookbook. So it was me with a cis woman model. Just playing around with who can marry who and, you know, what that looks like. And it was really the photographer and the brand, Cotton Bride, who wanted to show something different, but not for the sake of 
getting clicks, although it eventually, you know, hey, got a lot of clicks. (laughs) Can you blame us? (laughs) Right? It wasn't for that. It was just that the industry was so calcified around what the image is and what a bride is supposed to be and want and become and, you know, the rules that that person's supposed to follow and, and all of that. And they specifically wanted to melt people's brains a little bit. So how did it feel when you saw it? What, how, what kind of reaction did you get from yourself? What, did you just say, what kind of reaction did I get from myself? Yeah, I did. I got the best kind of reaction. Um, very happy. I mean, first of all, the outfits are gorgeous. But second of all, the image, the idea, someone knows right away that it's a wedding gown. Because there are, there are certain parts, tropes even, you know, bits of dialogue that go with, it's not just a white dress. It is cut a certain way, styled a certain way, uh, presented a certain way. There's a lot of variety in that. But something screams wedding right off the page. And I personally had never seen someone like me screaming that. Certainly not screaming bride in the way that this was designed to do. The images were so exciting. Divorced from the fact that it was me, you know? Just seeing those images made me feel more uh, at home, at ease, happy, carefree. I think that people in general, well, I know that people in general struggle with what it means to be or feel beautiful, right? Especially people in trans and gender non-conforming and the gender fluid community. You did a a video recently with no makeup, no beautiful dress because you have fantastic dresses. (laughs) Talking about about how you present and, and the power of these tools. And I'd like to hear about you talking about, even though I know you're not the representative for all people in the entire non-binary collective of humanity. Just want to put that out there. But in the context (laughs) of you and how you float through this world, how do expectations of beauty manifest themselves in ways that are helpful to you? And how do they manifest themselves in ways that shackle you? I don't know. Does that? Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. And in a way, I'm very aesthetically pleasing Hey, <laughs> so no one can deny that I'm actually beautiful. I mean, that is that is just empirical truth. And I am painting and celebrating and eyelining something that everyone has been told should not be beautified, period. And a lot of people who do not meet the beauty standards see that metaphor in me and are attracted to my videos and my work. For whatever reason, they've been told that they should not beautify. It's just such a horrible, cruel thing to tell people, you know, you're not worth it. (laughs) If you want to wear eyeshadow, you're not worth it, right? Which is the message a ton of people get. And of course, someone like me got that message growing up. 
you know, that is beside all of the things about, you know, queer phobia and how you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't be so LGBTQ and all of that stuff. Just pausing that for a second. I am in a shell that people say should not be worshipped and beautified through cosmetics. I do it anyway. And I love it. And I relish it. And I make choices. And I'm bold. And I hope that... So before we had the language to talk about being non-binary, I would have said maybe, I'm a drag queen. I wasn't really, but it was like the thing that was closest that I could grab onto. But the reason I gave up drag is that to me, there's an element of drag, which is great and a lot of people like, but that is taking the look to a certain place that directly challenges people. And I'm not doing that. Again, that's great. I'm glad people do that. We need those people on earth. I'm not doing that. What I'm doing is hopefully what I try to do is bring a sense of worship, dignity, delight, working with the features I have. To me, that almost has its own kind of challenge and subversion to it. Do you know what I mean? I know what you mean. Because I just think I'm pretty and I like it. Jeffrey Marsh, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. You're going to want to stay tuned for a show which is entirely dedicated to Jeffrey Marsh's voice and views on the world. Because as you can imagine, they cannot be contained to a single segment. So subscribe to Audacious so you don't miss a thing. And you'll always get to hear the show a day early. Plus, you can listen back to shows featuring things like what the costume designer for Schitt's Creek says is the Moira Rose outfit she's most proud of, and what it's like to be a world-famous female baritone opera singer who happens to be trans. You can hear them all at ctpublic.org audacious or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for leaving that review on the show on Apple Podcasts. That and rating Audacious with all of the stars really helps people find us. Audacious is produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, Kelly Langevin, Missy Carvalho, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Wolf, And my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>